If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me once again this morning to the book of Zechariah, near the end of the Old Testament. If you're visiting with us this morning, we have been studying this Old Testament prophet. We are in our 11th week of our study of the book of Zechariah, and we continue this morning not just in our study of this book, but in our unpacking, if you were here last week, in our unpacking of the answer that Yahweh is giving to his people's question, a question that was asked last week, way back in chapter 7, verse 3, where they said this, should we keep weeping and abstaining? Let me just remind you of the context of that question. Right? Remember, we are in the 6th century B.C. In fact, we know that it's December 518 B.C. We know the exact time and place when this is being written. The temple that the people of Israel have come back to the Holy Land to rebuild is about halfway completed. There's much to be done still, but the trajectory is very encouraging for God's people. And so they're looking around at what they're seeing and they wonder, in light of all these encouraging signs, Lord, should we continue in these mournful fasts that have been part of our lives for close to 70 years? Remember, there was a series of four fasts that were set up by the people of God to mourn the various stages in the falling of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Last week we looked at the first half of the Lord's answer to them, which exposed their heart. It revealed their lack of heart behind this ritual, right? Yahweh says to them, was it for me? Is is that why you're doing these things? And he replies to their question with a question of his own. And then you remember after that, Yahweh exhorted his people to outward religion to outward faithfulness to the kind of outward evidence that reveals a heart that is inwardly changed it was a hard message to hear in a lot of ways it's always hard when we're cut to our hearts and to our very motives behind why we do the things we do and it's hard to hear then again then go do these things and as one of you pointed out in an email to me this past week it was a woeful end right as Yahweh speaks of the judgment of his people and goes silent but we pick up the story today thankful that his answer is not yet done that he's got more to say And that's what we move into as we move into chapter 8 in the second half of this answer. It's really the end of the answer to the question, but it's also the end of the story. This story. Our story. And so listen as I read. It's our tradition here at Ascension for you to stand for the reading of God's Word. So if you're able, I'd invite you to do that with me. Zechariah chapter 8, verses 1 through 23 is what I'll be reading. The entirety of the chapter. Zechariah chapter 8, verses 1 through 23. Listen and follow along. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. 
and I am jealous for her with great wrath, thus says the Lord. I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong. You who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast. Neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purpose to bring disaster on you when your fathers provoked me to wrath and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise in your hearts evil against one another, and love no false oath for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love truth and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated. Well, the midterm elections are over. No more commercials clogging the airwaves. 
of politicians looking for our votes. The ballots are mostly counted. Whether you wound up getting what you wanted out of this election cycle, whether you're pleased or whether you're discouraged, this is for certain. The kingdom still hasn't come, has it? (laughs) We're still a long ways off. But that's why we're here this morning. We're here this morning not to discuss political wins or losses, not to strategize about producing different results in two years. Those things are well and good to put energy and effort into, but not here and not now. No, we're here because we in this room have been given the gift of a different perspective, of a better perspective of an understanding of the future that trumps all trumps. The Lord in His Word today gives us two promises that are meant to challenge and encourage His people, both then in the 6th century and today for us. I hope you felt it. I hope you heard it. What a beautiful passage. I kind of just wanted to sit down and be done with it. We're going to unpack it a little bit. We're going to just set our hearts on it for a few moments and hopefully make it even that much more memorable as you walk out from this place. Two promises, and the first one is this. Let your hands be strong, for God is with us. Let your hands be strong, for God is with us. Let your hands be strong. He says it twice in this passage. Zechariah does. Ultimately, the Lord does through Zechariah. He says it in verse 9. He says it again in verse 13. It's the culmination of the impact of some significant promises that Yahweh gives to His people. And the overarching promise is Yahweh's presence. And we've talked about this before in this book. But here, on the heels of him questioning their motives and questioning the core of their hearts, Yahweh says to them, I am zealous for you. He is not indifferent to his people. He is jealous for his people. He is zealous with great jealousy. He has not given up on his people despite their rebellion, but rather there is an intensity about returning to and restoring her. And so he says to 6th century B.C. Israel in verse 3, I have returned. I will dwell. And they're not seeing it all, right? But the trajectory is good. They're, they're getting glimpses of it. And this tension that they lived is a tension that's similar to what we live in as well here in 2022. We've talked about it already, this theological paradigm of the already and the not yet. The kingdom has come, and yet the kingdom is still to come. And it's Yahweh's present and future presence that has these rippling effects that are outlined in this passage. And that's what I want to focus on. There's some overlap of what we've looked at before in this book, specifically in the visions. But let me 
talk about these rippling effects of Yahweh's presence in three categories. First of all, Yahweh is creating, He is transforming a new community. Verse 3, Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. This place that God is returning to dwell in, this place that God is about building is going to be called Truth City. It's called Truth City because it reflects the character of our God, of the one who built it. This is a city that's characterized by honesty and by integrity, right? This was an issue that was already addressed in this prophecy. It was addressed in one of the visions, that of dishonest commerce among God's people, those who are taking advantage of the vulnerable in their business dealings, and the Lord wanted no part of it. And the Lord says here, in the new community that I am building, there will be no problem with dishonest scales. Truth City. And Mount Holiness. Mount Holiness, it will be comprised of those who are blameless, those who have been cleansed by the truth, those whose allegiances in their hearts will will no longer be conflicted they'll no longer be drawn to false gods but they will walk faithfully in the way of Yahweh as they were created and intended to do even as he reminds and prods his people of the need for this outward religion in verses 16 and 17 he does so with the undergirding that he is the one who is going to accomplish these things He is the one who is going to transform this new community. Let your hands be strong, for God is with us. Then there's a second rippling effect. He's bringing peace and prosperity to this city. When I read this passage and was thinking about it this week, the image that first came to Nate Hitchcock's mind, my 21st century American mind, was Norman Rockwell, of all things. Norman Rockwell. I I remember as a young boy, this coffee table that sat on my family's coffee table, and I have memories of pouring over this book, looking at Norman Rockwell's idyllic scenes of rural America. What a vision. God gives the 6th century Jews, right? In contrast to the hardship, the slave labor, the malnutrition that they had experienced as a result of the exile, as a result of God's judgment. Here we see in verses 4 and 5, young and old, relaxing and playing. The old have canes in their hands, or at least canes by their side, signifying that they've been around for a lot of years. They've lived long, good lives. And the children are playing, not just in the yards, they're playing in the streets because there's safety. There's no concern. This is an age of safety and peace, verse 12 says but also of prosperity. In an agricultural society, right, this picture is painted in these kinds of terms. Verses 12 and following, a sowing of peace that results in the vine giving fruit, 
the ground giving produce, the skies opening up with the appropriate amount of rain for it all. It's so far from what these people have lived and from what they can even imagine. It's almost too good to be true, which is why the Lord anticipates their doubt by saying at the end of verse 6, look at it there with me, should it also be marvelous in my sight? It's kind of a curious phrase, but the Hebrew construction here possibly suggests a little bit of sarcasm. A little bit of playful sarcasm. Is anything really too hard for the Lord, guys? You don't think I can do this? You think this is too good to be true? It's not too good for me. I can do it. And I will do it, says the Lord. And the net result of this new community that He is transforming and the peace and prosperity that it will exist in the city walls as a result, the net result is that the fasting... Right, The very issue that brought up this initial answer. The fasting will be turned into feasting. Right? Verses 18 and 19. The fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. You see, when this season comes that Yahweh is speaking of, there will be no more need for fasting. Because all that it represents, repentance, mourning, longing, all those things will be no more. You see, these great and precious promises flowing from the presence of God in the midst of his people are given to God's people why why that their hands might be strengthened now for God's people in the sixth century right for these ancient Jews literally involved in a building project this was a very little image right it was a very literal image. As I'm hauling bricks and hauling mortar with my hands, I have a little more spring in my step as my muscles ache and are weary and sore. Because I know full well that all of this work is headed somewhere beautiful and stunning. Too good to be true. But if God says He can do it, then He'll do it. But for you and I here this morning, it's not literal, but it's for us, right? Let your hands be strong is a metaphor for all of God's people in every age to have the courage and to have the perseverance to attend to a demanding task, right? It reminds us of other familiar encouragements like take heart or as Peter said, prepare your minds for action. I love how the old translations say, gird up your loins for what lies ahead. Encouragements given to the New Testament church, to us who sit here today in light of the reality and the promise that our hands can be strengthened because God is with us. 
Emmanuel, God, is with us. The presence of Yahweh has returned and has come to us in the incarnation of His Son and remains with us here as we've sung about, as we've prayed about, in the power of His Spirit who is at work in us transforming this community. And so while all these promises in this scene that is painted strengthen the hands of the 6th century Drew as they were carrying bricks, as they were stirring mortar for the temple of God, it is ultimately pointed to a scene stronger and more secure than they could even imagine. There is a straight line from the original hearers of this message, a straight line through us here today to the consummation of all time. To the consummation of the ages. Sure, God, Yahweh, would transform His city, the earthly city of Jerusalem, to an extent. He will do that for the people of the 6th century, right? Right after Zechariah comes Nehemiah. And Nehemiah will pick up the building project. It won't be without opposition, it won't be without hardship, but he will continue on what has begun here. They will continue to build, and eventually there will be this era of peace restored to God's people in the Holy Land. And that is what we see in the history books, in the centuries leading up to the incarnation of Jesus and the arrival of Jesus in the Roman Empire. So that will happen, but he is also now transforming Us, you and I. And He will ultimately bring about transformation to all things in the new heavens and the new earth. So yes, God will bring a measure of peace and prosperity to the nation of Israel. We now enjoy a measure of peace and prosperity as God's people and as those who sit secure in the work of the Lord Jesus. But ultimately, there is a Rockwell scene to come. Way better than Norman Rockwell. Way better than we can even imagine. Isaiah spoke of it in Isaiah 65. For behold, I created new heavens and new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into my mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. Same kind of things. This is the Lord's work. He's about this. I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem. I will be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives for but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. That's the picture echoed. That's the future that is coming That's the vision given to strengthen our hands in the present. And so when it comes to fasting and feasting, just to revisit that for just a moment, since that was the original question, we talked about it, touched on it a little bit last week. What should we do? I mean, the Lord really didn't directly answer their question, did He? I'm not going to answer it for them, but let's answer it for us. What should we do? Should we be fasting or should we be feasting? And the answer is yes. We should be doing both. Because you and I live in this tension. 
to bring that seminary language, that theological paradigm of the already and the not yet. We live in this tension, this already and not yet. We long for what is to come, but we feast and we rejoice in that which has come and that which has been revealed. Remember that whole question, we've studied it before in the book of Mark, that whole question about fasting that came up with Jesus and his disciples while he was on earth, and they questioned why Jesus' disciples weren't fasting, and what did Jesus say? Yeah, they don't need to fast right now, right? That time when Jesus was with them, when his presence was fully theirs, no fasting for Jesus' disciples. Because the things that it represents... The longing for his presence. He was there. But he said, when I leave, then they will indeed fast. That's a whole other sermon, a whole other series. We'll talk about that maybe another time. But whether we fast or whether we feast, the focus is the same. Because God is with us, because God will be with us again fully soon. We allow his promises to strengthen our hands. So let me put just a tad more meat on this bone in terms of like, what does that look like? Like, okay, walk out of here and I think about letting his promises strengthen my hands. What does that mean? I came across this quote by an old Puritan, Jeremiah Burroughs. Wrote a great little book called The Secret of Contentment. And he wrote this about the promises of God. I think it's in that book. He says, The saints of God have an interest in all the promises that were ever made to our forefathers from the beginning of the world that are their inheritance and go on from one generation to another. So every time a godly man or woman reads the Scriptures and there meets a promise, He or she ought to lay his hand upon it and say, this is part of my inheritance. Thank you. And I am to live upon it. That's what it means. Lay your hand upon the promises of God and then pick them up and let them be strengthened because God is with us. That's the first encouragement this morning. And there's a second. Let your hands be strong because the harvest is plentiful. Let your hands be strong because the harvest is plentiful. Now those of you who are familiar with the Bible, you you know that phrase. I've heard that phrase, Nate, but it's not here in Zechariah chapter 8. You're right. It came from Jesus' mouth, right? In Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 and 38, we read this, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. So why do I bring it up here? Let your hands be strengthened, for the harvest is plentiful. Because as I was studying this, as I was thinking about digesting this as God's people I see in this passage, in this prophecy, not so hidden among these promises, an exhortation about mission. 
You see, we skipped one of the great promises that Yahweh gives to His people in hopes that their hands will be strengthened. It's found in verses 7 and 8. He says this, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. In other words, Yahweh is about repopulating the city of Jerusalem. He is going to regather the exiles, those Jews who are still far off, those Jews who have not returned, who are still in the land of Babylon, and they will be united together again, populating the city of Jerusalem, the city of truth, and the Mount of Holiness. How encouraging this was, right? For this little remnant that had returned and was carrying brick and mortar, that soon the city would be teeming with God's people. But we also see that this regathering is just the first installment of what is to come. Right? For the picture that we receive in verses 20 through 23 is one of way greater scope and way farther reach. Yahweh's city of truth and mount of holiness, his idyllic scene of peace and property, is not just for the Jew, but it is for all nations. And it's a conquering that's not coming through military conquest, but through. Literally, the grabbing of coattails. Do you remember that? Did you remember reading that or hearing that? Verse 23, In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of the Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. The Hebrew root word that's translated take hold, it's the same root for the word translated be strong. In verses 9 and 13, there's a connection there. Let me put it this way by quoting this helpful explanation. As the people's hands are strong, as they continue to work on the temple, so their efforts will translate into the hands of the nations grabbing hold of them in order to come to Jerusalem. What a great picture. This is the picture that Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah chapter 2. All the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. And this is what Jesus told us to be about, right? Matthew 5, let your light shine before others so that they see your good works might do what? Give glory to your Father in heaven. And of course, the great commission of Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. This is the mission of the church. That in the world seen, our lives of of holiness, our lives of faithfulness, our lives of commitment, Lives that go against the grain, lives that are countercultural, lives that stand for things that the world hates. And in hearing the message of the gospel proclaimed in our midst in contexts like this, 
in contexts like community groups, in contexts like our own homes, our own workplaces, that our robes, figuratively speaking, might be grabbed as well. As people say, we have heard that God is with you. Take us to Him. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think I quoted him last week too, British pastor, he wrote this, he said, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate her and hate it at first. But that is how revival comes. That must also be true of us as individuals. It should not be our ambition to be as much like everybody else as we can, but rather to be as different from everybody who is not a Christian as we possibly can be. You see, it's by this and through the power of the Holy Spirit, of course, that 3,000 Jews at Pentecost turned into however many millions of followers dot this planet. Our mandate hasn't changed, though our times will keep changing, though there will be seasons where it's more challenging than ever to look different than the world. But this is a passage, I think, where the Lord is reminding us, let your hands be strong, because the harvest is plentiful. If we long for this scene, and I hope you do long for this scene, then as one commentator said so eloquently, let's work to turn the promise into the facts of history. Let's work to turn the promise into facts of history. Of course, we're not going to do it on our own. It's ultimately the Lord and His grace and His Spirit. But we can pray for it. We can work towards it. We can let our hands be strong knowing that He is with us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You this morning once again for the encouragement of Your Word. We confess that we are a weary people. We are a distracted people. We confess that we have not shown ourselves to be as distinct from the world as we ought. We have chosen to blend in. We've chosen to not offend. Oh Father, show us the error of our ways and lead us in the way everlasting. Father, certainly we don't want to be a people who offend for offense's sake. We want to be people of love, but we also want to speak the truth and speak the truth in love. And so, Father, I pray that we would go from this place with a renewed vision of what is to come and with renewed strength in our hands to be about the work that You call us to be the work that You are ultimately doing in and through us. Father, this I pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.